All right, guys, here's another episode of the Daily CDs. I'd like to take this time to thank all the people who've joined my Patreon. I really appreciate that. And then also the guys who have joined the, my membership on my YouTube channel. Uh, all that really helps a lot. And also to uh, Value Pack, dog food. You know, I fed Value Pack before. I really thought it was good dog food. The hounds did really good on it. And uh, I'll be feeding it again here soon. Uh, I think it's really important that we support the companies that support what we do. Also to W Supply. Uh, they provide this platform for us to share our content. And uh, I want to thank them for that. Anyway, here's that episode. Enjoy. Well, this is um, another little story about when we were hunting for the biological survey. And, uh, of course, I was real young then. Well, Clay and I were camped up there at that Wallen Bird Ranch right there at the south end of the port uh, of the Hickory Apache Indian Reservation. And we didn't take any horses in there. So we was going to rent some from a Mexican fellow there. So we were waiting to get our horses. So we went on over to an old cabin a few miles from this Wallenberg Ranch and camped there. And there was a barn there where we could keep our dogs in because it was bitter cold. Now it was in January and there was a lot of snow on the ground. Well, we had to get out and hunt, so we was doing it afoot. So one morning, we climbed out on a little rim there, and I had a little pack on my back, little stuff, and was very careful to put in a good flashlight. And so I went quite a ways back around that rim, and I, I hit a, a line track, and it was old, but the dogs could trail it in the snow, and we trailed it a long way. And it never did get any pressure. So I took them off and decided I'd try to get back to camp. Well, now, when you was laying out in that kind of weather, it wasn't very it wasn't very nice. Of course, I had plenty of matches and everything to build a fire with in case I had to stay out. Well, I got back along that rim and about down where I was only about three miles from camp and is I never had no watch but it it had been dark for quite a while. But I had to, you could get out and through this rim, but you had to have a light. So I got out my flashlight and was looking for a place to get through. And I, of course I was tired because I'd been a walking in that dog gone snow and I had on a, a heavy pair of old overshoes. And been walking in it all day long, and uh, I stepped on a rock and it rolled and I fell down and I broke my flashlight. And it was dark. Well, I was afraid to try to get off of that rim. Then in the dark, I was afraid I'd fall off a bluff and hurt myself. So I backed up and got up there a ways and found an old. Well, it was kind of a. It was a dead tree, but in the place where the wind had whipped out most of the snow and it and I found some good pitch wood there and I gathered me up a lot of wood and 
got me a good fire started there. Well, when you're like that, you'll be real warm on one side and be a freezing on the other. But anyway, well, I was sitting there shivering and the shaking and trying to doze a little bit. I was sitting there, and the moon had just come up and was showing pretty good. Well, I could have probably got off of that rim in the moonlight, but I was so stiff and all, and I knew that I couldn't get to camp and do anything. So I was going to wait there till daylight. Down a minute, these dogs jumped up and they run down into a little swale larger. And I didn't know what was happening. I just jumped up and grabbed my gun and took after them. And here was a skunk trying to come up to my campfire, I guess. Anyway, well, some of these dogs grabbed it and killed it. And I hollered at them and went on back up the campfire. And here the dogs come and they would trying to lay down and shiver around that campfire. And one old pup, well, he brought that skunk back up there and laid him down, down there, not too far. So I got up and I got that skunk and I should have thrown him up my tree. But I threw him away off down there and went back and sit down. And after a while, I looked down there and hear that old pup come carrying his skunk. Well, he didn't bring him up so close that time. And he left him down there. And then he came on up to the fire and laid down. Well, the smell was awful around there. Anytime there's a little breeze, well, of course, oh, when it got daylight and I started out to get go down through this rim and go on over to camp, this old pup goes and gets his skunk. But he knew I didn't want him to have that skunk, so he'd stay way behind and carried that skunk. And you know that dog carried that skunk until he could see the until he could see the camp. I guess he intended to eat him. I don't know, but anyway, well, when he saw camp, well, he laid his skunk down and come on in, and that was that was quite an experience, and that was a miserable night because I know it was way below zero. Well, this hunt took place right after I. Been up in Oregon, uh, helping Fred Arsner. And I've been gone, uh, as I remember, oh, four or five months. And I got home one day, and the next day, Cleo came after me. Now, he, he and a cousin had to camp in the, in Wood Canyon, which is in the north end of the Cherry Cows, uh, Right close to old Cochise Head, which is a famous landmark in those Cherry Cow Mountains. They call it Cochise Head because it's a big rock and it is at a distance where it kind of looks like the face of a man laying on his back looking up. The way it's got his name in Cochise was uh, one of the famous Apache chiefs that caused the United States Army lots of grief years ago. So it's, it's got its name, Cochise Head, because he operated, this old Indian chief operated all over that country there for quite a few years. So anyway, well, they had been they was having trouble there with the line, and they had run her several times and could never catch it. It was a female. And he and Dudley had caught 
two of her kittens, which were almost drawn lines at that time. So he said, come on and help me catch that old female. Well, a fellow from California had shipped us a, a dog in there to train for him. And he was uh, giving us the price of a high-priced hound to train this this young dog, and as our and we had sold him the the dog when it was just a puppy, and as I remember, the puppy was uh, the dog then was somewhere between a year and a half and two years old, and he had had him a trailing cats and things, and the dog would work some, but he didn't didn't know very much, and he wasn't trash proof or anything like that. So I don't remember, but we had been hunting the dog for a while and had him pretty well uh, along the line. And I know we'd had him in on seven line kills, besides lots of trails. And he treed all right, and he was a pretty good track dog. Now, he was a, this was a brindle dog out of that old, a grandpup of that old, dog we got from old man Hessig that was supposed to be a, a German bloodhound. And I've never seen another dog like him before or since. And so I, that's what the old man said he was. And I don't know what he was, but that's what he's supposed to be. But anyway, well, <clears throat> we knew that this old female line had went on a, a good big mountain there right next to her camp. So the next morning, I took five hounds and circled and went on that mountain from one direction. And Clell, I think, took seven hounds and circled the other way. And we were going to meet up on that mountain. We knew about where we were going to meet unless one of us got heir to that line. So as, uh, as I was climbing up, and could look up towards the top, and there's quite a little ways on up there, and fairly steep. My dogs picked up this line track, and I saw the track right away, and it was of this female line, and she was uh, going into our circle. I knew good and well that that line is in our circle, the way Clell had circled, the way I'd circled, if he hadn't picked up her tracks. And my dogs away, they went around the mountain and just a little bit and they're out of hearing. And I looked up on this mountain and Clay rode down on top of it, away up there. And I don't think he had heard my hounds. Anyway, I hollered and finally, he, he finally heard me and looked down there and I waved at him and waved for him to come on. And he came on down there as fast as he could, had his dogs, and I said, Clell, that old line, that line's got to be in our circle, because you didn't cross her tracks. And I said, there, it's, it's a good running track. And I said, my dogs have already went around there, and they're out of hearing. So let's put your dogs on the track, and it, it's rough going around there, and you kind of go around with the horses, and I'll take after my foot. And he said, all right. So, boy, his dog took her right down the way they went, me right after my foot. And uh, 
my dogs wasn't very far from there, and they all already had the line caught. <clears throat> but anyway, when we're atop the good high ridge line, listened off in kind of a, a basin in a canyon, and now that country was bluffy. Well, there were trees. So I just eased down there and got right close to the tree, and she is treed right on the edge of the bluff, up a small tree. And I was just standing there, and, and this rock would come up about tomorrow and pitch, and I was just leaning over that rock looking at that line, which is probably 40 feet out in front of me. And, ju and just standing there looking at it, I was really just waiting for Clay. And down a minute across a little canyon, he rimmed around there and seen me standing there in that line. And so he says, kill her. So I raised up and, and, and shot her off and she went off with this bluff. Well, none of the dogs didn't go off. And then they went back towards him and had to go into a little canyon there and then rim in under the bluff to get back to that line. So they did. And there's a chewing on her. And so jokingly, I just hollered to him. I said, Say, did you see that dog go off that bluff? <laughs> And he said, no, I didn't. He said, which one went off? Well, he, he had a pup there that was just doing real good that he called Panther, and we've had several dogs named Panther through the years. I said, oh, Panther. The old pup about a year and a half old. He said, no, oh, Panther didn't go off of that bluff. He said, because I heard him a barking. It's not him. So we went on down to the the line and gutted it and got it out. And every dog was there except that dog we was training. And I had had him in, in the pack I had that morning. And we couldn't figure hardly how that dog could have fell out of that race. At least we hadn't seen him or nothing. But we took the line and went on back to camp. And when I started to tie up my hounds, I had five, and then that would have been four with this dog gone. Well, every one of them was scratched up, and they scratched up pretty good. And I said, hey, and we have, hadn't looked them over before. And I said, hey, Clell, come here. Oh, he come out there, and I said, no, I don't like this. I said, look, every one of these hounds here that I had to, that was the first hounds, that line has been a fight. And she's probably done it right on that bluff. And if she did, I'm worried now that that dog's probably being under that bluff somewhere, dead. <clears throat> so we looked, looked them over, and they was crashed up. He said, oh, I'm going back up there. So he saddled up and went back up to that bluff. And he found that dog in under that bluff, just dead as a dog could be. And what happened is fighting that line on that that bluff, and he said he had scratched up. Well, that line scratched him up and just slapped him off of that bluff and killed him. And so, but when we encountered our dogs, it was quite something. We had the same number that we ought to let see. Seven and five, that would be, that would be 12. 
and we still had twelve dogs. But we got to looking, and one had got away from camp, and 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 uh, came up there. And well, he followed one of us around and hit the track. But anyway, we had the same number of dogs, but one had got loose from camp. So uh, we we couldn't help it. We just wrote and told that guy that we were just about ready. To, we'd have been sending him back that dog. There's a trained dog within three or four months that we'd that uh, we'd had him in on seven lines, and the eighth line killed him. And that we just couldn't help it. He said, well, he said, no. I said, we didn't tell you we'd guarantee you any dog because when you're hunting him, you can't guarantee a dog. And he wrote back and he said, well, I didn't expect any guarantee. But he says, I'm certainly pleased that he was making a good hound. And he said, so I'm going to buy a good high-priced trained dog. And I want you to ship me one. And we did. Well, now, there's lots of things that can happen to dogs when you're hunting them. But, and I'll give you a, a few instances that's happened to me that, that seems kind of funny. Now, any time that a dog is up in those high bluffs and rims, and we've had quite a few to fall and kill themselves, not by the animal, but by the fall. And uh, it's pretty dangerous in those big high rims in that rough country for dogs to be killed in bluffs. And we've had a number of them killed that way. But we hunt our dogs down there now with collars and nameplates on. But I'll tell you an instance that happened that was caused by a collar that if we hadn't been right there, well, the dog would have died, and we'd have never knew where he was. But we were in a small bunch of bluffs, a trailing this line, and this dog went down through kind of the crack of one of these ledges, and he jumped to get off, and there was a snag of sticking up, and it run right under his collar, and I, I there and seen him. And there that dog was a hanging there, but and uh, his feet was probably two or three feet from the ground, his hind feet. And the stop was running through his uh, collar and sticking up there, an old dead snag that was stout, six inches from his collar. And there was a guy right there just in below me. And when I saw this, I hollered at him. I said, get around there and get around there. That blue tick. Is a choking to death. <clears throat> He's run a stob in his collar. And he said, Why? I said, Just right around there from you. You're lots closer to him than I am. And he ran around there and then heard the dog was choking and jumped around there and grabbed him and lift him off, lifted him off of that stob. And, and he was all right. Well, now that's the hazards of hunting your dogs in that country with the collars on. Because if I hadn't have been right there and seen that, that dog would have choked to death there, and we'd have never found him if out of it had been a miracle. And we would have never known what happened to that dog. Now, I've lost quite a few dogs that I never did know what happened to them. I think some of them was actually killed 
by the animal they were pursuing. And I imagine that some of them fell off a bluff and that kind of stuff. Because in my career, I've lost quite a few that I'd never have them on a track and never see or hear of them again. And it would be impossible to trail them up and find them. Well, now, I've hunted over lots of country. But I started out in the Cherry Cow Mountains of Arizona, and I call that my home range. And I branched out from there, and now I've hunted in quite a lot in Oregon. And I've hunted also in California, and I've hunted quite a little in Nevada, and I've hunted in Colorado, and I've hunted in, of course, Arizona many, many times, and I've hunted also in New Mexico, and I've covered almost all of both of those states. And then I've hunted also in in Texas. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, then I, uh, going on down south, well, I've hunted quite a lot in British Honduras and and Nicaragua and Costa Rica, Central America, and then on into South America, I've hunted in uh, Colombia, Venezuela, and Bolivia. And now that, and also got down in the northern part of Argentina. <clears throat> well, now, I've covered lots of country hunting, and that's the way I was making my living, and I really did enjoy it. Now, distance didn't make any difference to me. Now, just as it, uh, while I was in the Army over there, and after the war was over in Germany, we were in there for a while, and some of the high officers were interested in hunting, and they had that big Russian boar there, which was the the ones that's brought over here, there's very few of them now that is of the pure strain. They're mixed with some of our domestic hogs. But over there, they had quite a few that were that were pure Russian boars. And they was talking to them, and they said, would you get out here and find us some dogs, and if we can possibly pull it, well, we'll go on a big boar hunt. So I got busy. And went all over that country. Of course, at the Army expense and then Army vehicle. And uh, I made a couple of trips when I'd be gone two or three days, and I located some dogs that they said were boar dogs. I never did get a chance to hunt them. And we were getting pretty well lined up. And then uh, something happened right quick, and we had to pull out of there. And we never got to go on that hunt. But I'd enjoy that hunting a wild boar because I hadn't been able to do any big game hunting for quite a while. That game hunting over there when I amongst those Germans was a different proposition because they'd shoot at you and they'd kill you. But another time, well, guess it was getting bad over in, uh, in, uh, 
Vietnam. There's a big game. There's a sportsman down there and a big game hunter. And he's also guided mostly for sheep and deer in Mexico. His name is George Parker. And he's a good, he's a good friend of mine and a good fellow. And I've known him for many years. And so he came to me and he said, say, he said, I was just over to, to, to Vietnam on a, on a big game hunt. And he says they have really got the game there. And he had quite a few trophies come out of there. And he said they've got a, a good bunch of Bengal tigers there. <clears throat> he said, now, do you think that dogs could handle those Bengal tigers? I said, well, George, I don't know, of course. I have never had any experience with a Bengal tiger. But they can sure handle an African lion. So they should be able to handle a Bengal tiger, but it may, might take lots of dogs. He said, well, listen, I'm well acquainted with lots of the big sportsmen all over the United States, and I know men that have really got the money. <clears throat> Before I ever mentioned it to you, he said, I've mentioned it to several, to several of these fellows, and they are really enthused. <clears throat> I said, well, I'll if we can make some money out of it, I'd sure go. He said, well, let's go to working on it. Well, I was going into Mexico, and I'd already took a bunch, bunch of deposit on some hunts down there. And he said, well, he says, I'll tell you what let's do then. He said, let's, uh, why don't you go on and make your hunts that you've got committed? But he said, uh, right now, don't line up anymore. Because he said, when you get through down there, well, I'll go to working on it right now. And I'll see if I can get some hunters. And, uh, we're going to charge them a big price, of course. I said, well, we'd have to, with all expense and all that we'd be out. To go over there, I said, say, George, I want to ask you a little something. Well, he said, what is it? I said, now, look, of course, those, those tigers are going to bay on the ground, but I don't think they climb trees. I don't think those big tigers can climb trees, or I don't think they do. I said, naturally, they're going to be in the on the ground, and naturally, they're going to be in pretty thick places. I said, now, these dogs have a tiger bait in there. Would you go in there after them? Well, now, he said, that is a pretty good $64 question. He said, I hadn't thought about that. I said, well, if, if you're going to hunt with hounds and on bay stuff, you better think about that. He said, well, what would you do? I said, well, listen, George, it's never been tested. But I said, I can tell you right now, if my dogs made a Bengal tiger, I don't care what else that did. And they were in there holding that thing. If I wouldn't go in there, that would be my last time that I would 
go after anything like that. Because if if I wouldn't go where my dogs did, I would quit hunting. And I said, I'll tell you one thing. I would go in after a Bengal tiger if I had a good gun. And let's pay one and I'll show you. Well, he says, I don't doubt it one bit. Well, what you'd go in after him. Well, I said, that's the only way you go over there and hunt and have your mind made up, even if you got killed or what happened. You would go in there with your dog. I said, a man shouldn't hunt dogs that's got more nerve than he's got. If he won't get up and produce the nerve, well, he'd better not put his dogs up against that game. Well, I went on to Mexico and he went to look. Now, he said, it's a getting bad over there. It's a getting a little bit dangerous. And if it gets very much, very much more dangerous than it was when I was over there, well, he said, we just can't go because if we'd take big chances on a good chance on getting killed uh, from, from those people because they're getting worse when I left there than there was when I got there. And so I went on to Mexico, and then he sent me word in. After I'd been in Mexico maybe a month, he said, go ahead and and uh, take out as many hunters as you can get because we cannot go to Vietnam. He said, things are getting worse over there than it was when I left, and it is getting bad then. So he said, we just simply can't go. And they had then, of course, it went on and they had the Vietnam War. So that blew that trip up. But let me tell you folks, I wanted to make that trip because that would have been a, a, a really a trip. And I know it would have been a thrill. So I went in after one of those old tigers made by dogs because I know what had been happening. But uh, if a man not going to take chance on this earth where well, he hasn't got much business living anyway because it's all a chance. Man might get killed doing anything and he's in as much danger out on these highways with this traffic the way it is today I figure as much, much as he is just about anywhere. So uh, I'd love to kill one of those bingo tigers with my dogs have it caught than just about anything coming down the line. Well, now, folks, this uh, this story came out in Outdoor Life of '81, uh, a story of about a jaguar hunt in Bolivia, South America. Well, now we had. Uh, went down the Rio Yacopani on this hunt, and the Rio Yacopani is a tributary to the Amazon, which is by far the largest river in South America, and it's a big river because it headwaters in the east and runs out to the ocean to the west. It runs from across South America, and of course, it's got many tributaries and many rivers coming into it. Well, while we were hunting on the Rio Yacopani, just really down where it had come out of the mountains. 
But anyway, we went over as far as we could to the edge of the river and haul our stuff over there. And we got boats and, and uh, hooked up the big old tree boat, dug out of trees. And then we had a, had a aluminum canoe that we had borrowed from, from some missionaries. And those missionaries really gave me the best information about the country and the, and the game than any of the natives did. But I kind of made one of these missionaries a little bit mad one day. Now, we were down amongst where they had those wild Indians. And I mean, they were wild. Just as wild as any uh, wild animal that come down the line. And uh, this missionary says, now listen, if you are out there and you run on to any of those wild Indians, don't you do anything to them, no matter what they do to you. I said, well, we'd better have a little understanding here about this. I said, now, according to you, the good Lord sent you down here. I said, well, he didn't send me on this business that I'm on because I come on my own hook to take these people hunting for jaguars. And I said, do you mean to tell me that if those Indians are trying to kill me and they possibly would not to do anything to them? He said, no, sir. They Don't you do anything to them if they kill you? I said, well, now, I don't agree with you there. I said, no, I'll tell you the, what's going to happen. If I do run on to those Indians and they do really try to hurt me or harm me or kill me, I said, I'm going to protect myself and I'm going to have some good rifles. Oh, don't you do? I said, well, all right. But they did. They loaned me this canoe and then another fellow there in Santa Cruz, he loaned us an old wood outboard motor. I think it is an eight power. So we met this party there, and they were two uh, two lumber men out of uh, out of the state of Washington, and had hunted with them before. And away we went. Well, we got over on that river, so we floated down it quite a ways, and uh, camped, and we didn't. And I called Jaguars that night and didn't hear anything. So we floated on down a ways the next day and then found quite a lot of Jaguars hiding along close to the river and in the sand. So we made it kind of a permanent camp where we was going to be camped for a few days. And so then I'd go up and down that river and call and one of these uh, one of these men were, was a man up in years and his son, which I imagine is a man 40, 45 years old. And so I told him then, I told this young one, I said, you go with me one night and your dad go with me the next. So they done that for And we hadn't got a run in a jack for, for a few nights. And finally one night, well, they said they was tired and they wanted to sleep in. 
And I said, well, for goodness sakes, one of you go with me. Because if you don't, <clears throat> I'm going to call. I'll, this, this is the night that I'll call a Jaguar right up. And I know the Jaguars roar in this country, and they roar good. Oh, no. Says if you ro get one to roar, and we'll come back after us. I said, all right. That's the way you want to do it. I said, that's the way we'll do it. <clears throat> so I told two natives in this. Well, I had helping me this young fellow, Dan Bush. He was a Jack Mormon. And uh, and he had two or three dogs there, and I had the rest of them. I think we had eight. I think he had. I think he had he had three and I had no. I guess we had eight. No, I had five. So I got him and those natives up the next about midnight and I said, Well let's start down this river. Just a paddling in that canoe. And I said, We'll see if we might get the answer by Jaguar. Well now all of those uh Rivers down in there, they wind. They don't hardly run in a straight line for any distance. They just make big curves. Well, every place they curve is a big sandbar because that's when the, how the water runs when it's, when it's real high. And, and this was the dry season and the water and the river was low. So we floated along. And I was up in the front of the boat, and I would take that old gourd and call every little bit. Well, we didn't hear a thing. <clears throat> then we <clears throat> went on down for about two hours. <clears throat> so I, we hit a real big, long sandbar. So we docked the boat, and one of these natives and I got out. Mm. Dan Bush and the other natives stayed there at the boat. And we walked right down through the middle of that sandbar, which I imagine was close to about a half a mile long. <clears throat> and when we got to the lower end of it, well, we sit down in the sand, stayed there quite a little while. And I made some calls and some good ones. And we didn't hear a thing. So we got up and just walked back slowly towards the boat. And uh, every little bit I'd call. Well, I'll bet that we wasn't over 200 yards from that boat. And I made a call and we were standing there just a little bit listening. And on the same side of the river that we was on, a jaguar really cut loose. And from the first roar, we could hear it playing. So I heard, we hurried on back up to the boat, and I said, take me across the river to that other sandbar and kick me out on that sandbar. And then you fellas take this boat and go back up the river, and by golly, you paddle it and everything, no matter if it is hard, until you're sure you're out of the hearing of that Jaguar and me before you start that motor, 
to help you get that boat up that river. And this time, Bush says, well, you know, says, I forgot my flashlight. I said, well, I asked you if you had everything, and you said yes. Well, I thought I did, but says, I was half asleep, and I haven't got my flashlight. I said, well, go on up in the dark. We can't go up that river in the dark. I said, all right. You get out here with this light and this gourd. And I said, you, you've never called very much, but you ought to be able to call that thing up. And I said, and call that Jaguar up, and I'll go back up the river in the dark and get those dogs and one of those hunters and come back. You're not going to put me out there on that sandbar calling that thing. Well, got a light or any other way. I'm not going to get out there by myself. I said, no, I've, I've come to the conclusions that you really need a guardian to take care of you. You're not a man yet. Well, he said, I'm so old, which is plenty old to be a man. I said, all right, then go on up. That, I can't go in the dark. I said, here, take this price right. And give me that old 44 Magnum pistol. And I'll get out here in the dark and call that thing up. And I said, you haven't got the nerve to do that, had you? He said, no, I haven't. I said, okay, won't. So I got up away from the river on this sandbar. And I sat down in the sand. And I, what I had, I had this gourd. And this old 44 Magnum, I didn't have it on my belt. I just had it in the scabbard. And I had a blanket, and that's all I had. And so I went to calling it. And boy, that thing went to roar. Well, now, see, that was long towards morning. It wasn't going to be too long. That By the time that took place, it is already... Uh, I think it's about a quarter to four, maybe 3.30, somewhere right along there, when they left. And I figured by the time they'd go up there and then they'd get back, of course, they could come back a lot faster than they went up. I figured they'd be there at 7 o'clock. And at 6 o'clock, well, it was good daylight. Well, I just kept a calling that thing, and it kept a coming closer. And it wasn't in no hurry, but it was really a coming, and it was really a roar. Well, just at six o'clock, when you could see good, it was roared right straight across the river from me. And I know it was right. If it hadn't have been for the jungles, well, I could have seen it. Because right straight across the river, this water got right in, and there was just a dirt bank there <clears throat> that was 20 or 30 feet high. <clears throat> and right on top, the jungle started. So, and really, it was a big rainforest. Them old trees uh, was 200 feet high and come together at the top. And you could just walk through there when the sun is right straight over you and never see a, uh, never see a place where the sun is hitting the ground. It is twilight down in there. Well, the underbrush wasn't bad. Jungle wasn't bad to get through because it's 
kind of opening and you could get right through it. There was patches of, of uh, stuff down in there, but you could get through it pretty good. Well, now, I was so doggone sleepy that I could just sit down and go to sleep. So I looked at my watch, and it was, you could see good, 6 o'clock. Well, I figured they'd be there within an hour. And I knew right where I could put those dogs, right on that fresh track. So I thought I would take a nap because I was really sleepy. So I just got on my right side and I covered up with that blanket and I pulled me up a blanket of a pillar of, of sand and I took that gourd and put right in under the, that blanket right against my stomach to keep it warm so that that hide uh, had stretched over it to make the call wouldn't get moisture on it and lacked up to where it wouldn't roar good. So just a minute I laid down while I went to sleep. And I I looked at my watch when this happened. It was just seven o'clock. Well this thing woke woke me up a roaring. And I had my laying on the right side, and I was looking down the river and then across it, right straight across from where I was, and my back was facing up the river. And I thought that it was, I went to looking in the jungle, I thought it was right straight across and on the other side, and it only woke me up at the last of its roars. And I just kind of raised up on my elbow and was looking across there and looking to see if I could see it. And now in a minute, I heard it growl right behind me. Well, it was on the same sandbar I was on. Well, I just slowly turned in this, under this blanket and turned around. And I throwed the blanket back up over my shoulder and looked up. And here it was, walking right down the sandbar, right straight towards me. And he's kind of growling. No, I said, oh, boy. So I just laid my gourd out one side on the sand, and I, I reached over and pulled out that old forty-four Magnum pistol out of the scabbard and laid it there. So, so I turned a little more before I'd be a face in that thing. And I was laying right on my belly with my elbows out, and I had this old gun in both hands. And he went to looking at me. I know at first he thought I was a drift log because they'd be drift logs all scattered up and down on those, uh, on those sandbars. But after he saw me turn and face him, well, he still kept coming and he went to growling. And I just laid there and I just sighted right in his chest as he's coming towards me with this old gun. And finally, I said, well, if he comes any closer, I'm going to go to shoot. And I'm going to shoot all six of these cottages at him or get him. And if, and if he does come after me, and I had to hit him when six cottages are out, I said, I'm going to jump up and throw this blanket over him. And maybe that'll detain him a little bit. 
and I'm going to run. And by golly, I'm going to run just as fast or faster than I've ever run in my life. Because I, that's all I could do. So that thing stopped and stood there and looked at me and growled and wrung his tail. And I knew if he come any closer, the shooting's going to start. Because I measured it the next morning, and it was 60 feet from where my head was to where the head of the, where the Jaguar was. And now, of course, he probably didn't stand there near as long as it seemed to me like he did, but he just stood there in one place. And after a while, he just turned and slowly kind of walked back the way he'd come, but he edged over towards the jungle. And I jumped up with this old six-shooter in my hand and went out in behind him. And he wouldn't run. He'd turn around and growl at me. And finally he walked over and walked into where I couldn't see him, into the jungle there. And he turned sideways just as he walked in. And I've never seen a jaguar before or since do that. He just took his tail right straight up. And just wrung it and growled and kind of laid his head, ears on his head. And that denotes that they might charge you or going to charge you. But he didn't charge. He just walked on into the jungle. Well, that was 7 o'clock. And I thought they ought to be there by that time. But they weren't. They didn't get there for another hour. And if I would have been a looking... I could have seen that thing because it went on back down the river then a ways and crossed back over to the side he'd just come from. And uh, if I'd have been looking, I could have seen him. But anyway, when they got there, well, we'd jerk the dogs out of that boat and we'd put them on the, on the tracks right there. Now, let's see how many dogs we had. We had old Drifter. And Bobby and Jake and a red hound that I've forgotten his name, and then a chocolate colored hound, and I've forgotten his name. And away they went. Well, Drifter and Bobby were two, was two of my experienced Jaguar dogs that uh, I'd hunted Jaguars with them a lot in Mexico. <laughs> one was a little spotted hound and the other one was a was a, an English blue chick. And they went down they and they went right across the river and this hunter says, are we going to take off our clothes? I said, listen, we didn't come down here to take no bath. We come down here to try to kill a jaguar. I said, now we're going to hit that river just like we are. And it's not, hardly, it, it's not swimming. Won't come up over our waist. And as warm as it, as it is, we're not going to be cold from being wet. So we just cross the river and come out on the other side. Well, I run off and left uh, that Dan Bush. And this hunter and one native, and I was trying to keep a native along with me. And he was scared of that jaguar, and I, I would run off from him. 
So I must, I heard the dogs bay. They didn't go any distance till they bayed him very far. And all right, I was running to them, and this native went to hollering to me, here it is, here it is. And I turned around and run back to him. I must have run 50 yards because I thought he was looking at it. And he was just scared, and there wasn't no jaguar there. And I turned and, and heard him catch a dog, and I turned and run back. Well, when I got to those dogs, there was only one dog left. And there was, the old blue tick was hurt bad, and there stood the little whitey dog of mine with a big hump in his back and his head hanging down and blood running out, all out of his mouth and all. And there laid one dog, this big uh, English-colored dog, and he was a big hound, probably 60-pound hound, and he was laying there with his neck broke. And the old red dog, well, I never did, I didn't know where he was. He, he wasn't there. And that left that chocolate-colored hound, and we went on after the jaguar. And here this jaguar run out, and I didn't get a chance to shoot at it, because I was going to kill it. And he hit that dog and knocked it down, and it just rolled. Just, just, just rolled. And I'll bet it, he, he hit him with his chest. And the jaguar run to, to, to jump on him, and I jumped over there to kill the jaguar, and the jaguar just raised up and made one jump. And before I could get a, could even shoot or anything, well, he was out of sight. And that is it. The, the last, the last dog was done for. So they come on up then, and we kind of dug a little hole there and buried that dead dog. And then we took some palms that we found there and made a kind of a little bag out of it. And we tied it on the, one of those natives' back, and we finally got back to the boat. And that was kind of a sad procession going back, and we never hadn't found the red dog. And we went on back to camp, and the next day we found that red dog down in below there. It's what they called a chickley camp. Now these natives was in there gathering that chickley, and they used that was a, a kind of a, come off of a certain kind of a tree, and it's used to make chewing gum with. And that was a hunt that wasn't very successful, and we never got the jaguar either. But I've often thought just how. I could have shot that thing on that sandbar, and I believe I could have killed it with that old forty-four Magnum, because I, I believe I could have hit it that far off anyway. And that was the end of a, of a hunt that wasn't very successful. Well, now, this is just exactly the way that happened, the best that I can tell it through my memory. And I remember pretty good. Just and that is the way it happens, step by step. And uh, I think it was kind of limited in outdoor life. But that's the story. And I think that that was, now that was a thrill, and it also kind of makes the, the children up and down just fine to see that thing walking right straight down to you on that sandbar. And not one thing between you and him. And I, I do remember exactly how far it was from where the Jaguar was to where I was laying there with that blanket thrown back over my shoulder to where I could jump up right fast. 
and it was just 60 feet because I measured it the next morning after everything was over with. Well, on July the 27th, 1982, I was 74 years old. And that's been 74 rough years because I started uh, uh, hunting professional when I was 18 years old and there for many years. I stayed out many days and nights right out in the mountains with my hounds. And I spent a lot of cold nights in trees, holding animals up a tree so that a client could get there to get their trophy. And uh, that, that is rough. And that's, uh, that is a hard life. But looking back, I realized that I've lived a lonely life. But being so busy in my profession to realize the loneliness, I'm thoroughly pleased with the way I've spent my allotted time on this earth. However, I could know that I have brought happiness to other hunters by stepping into your home and sharing my life experience hunting big game by the way of these cassettes. I will depart this life a happier man. Dale D. Lee, the last living member of the Lee hunting family.